My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. And you know, in, in the last few weeks, this month, we've been exploring the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. I know that's been like kind of mind-blowing for some of us and challenging for us to get our head around. But here, you know, one of the things we've said about this subject is that I, I realize that I'm a finite creature. And God is infinite creator. And so I would expect there's going to be a lot of things about God that I don't understand. That's the way it is. And that's the way it should be for him to truly be God. And, and so there's a, a certain amount of mystery to the nature of God. And you know what? I'm, I'm really okay with that. I'm really good with that. But even though the Trinity is hard to understand, what we've learned in this series, it's actually not that difficult to define it. And so uh, what we're going to do, let's start by just kind of reviewing where we've been, three important truths about the Trinity. Number one, there, there's one God. And we've seen in this series that the Bible is so strong on this, it, it just uncompromisingly teaches there's one and only one God, period. Okay, then the second thing that we've seen is that God exists in three persons. And we looked and saw that, you know, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are presented in Scripture as distinct and individual persons. That, that they're, they're different from each other, but they're still part of one God. Okay, now today, we're going to look at this third piece, that each of those three persons is fully God. And if we want to have a correct understanding of God, then this is kind of the final piece that we bring into the puzzle. That's what we're going to talk about today, that each person of the Trinity is fully God. Now, I know you feel the paradox of this, right? You feel like the three and the one, and like, how do those things go together? And how do we make sense of that? There, there, it is a paradox. And because of that, you know, historically, different groups have always been trying to resolve the paradox. But to do that, they have to let go of something important that the Bible has to say. And one of the ways that people have, have tried to resolve this paradox is to diminish the status or the identity of the Holy Spirit or of the Son. And, and that's why it's important for us to understand today, we're going we're gonna to take a look at this is the core idea, that at the heart of the Trinity is the claim that all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are fully God. So I want to show you today from the Bible why we, would, why we would say that the Holy Spirit is fully God, that Jesus is fully God. We're going to start with the Holy Spirit first. So here's where we're going to go. The Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God. The Bible clearly equates the Spirit with God. And I want to give you two lines of evidence on this. We're going to cover a ton of turf because I want to try to give you some really basic and important foundation in this area. So two lines of evidence. There's more we could say. But the first one on the Holy Spirit is that the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as having qualities that only God has. Okay, number one is uh, the Holy Spirit is eternal. Hebrews 9, for by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ himself offered to God, offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He's called the eternal spirit. And, and when you think about it, no created thing could be eternal. Every created thing has a beginning point in the past. So maybe eternal in one direction, but, but only God is eternal. 
the Holy Spirit, it says, is eternal. The second thing we see along these lines is that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Psalm 139, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. So this is what we say that the Holy Spirit then is infinite with respect to space. And only, uh, only a divine being can be infinite with respect to space, can be present everywhere at every time in the fullness of his being. The Holy Spirit is all-knowing. 1 Corinthians 2, it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit, for his Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. Oh, by the way, let me just mention to remind you, the Holy Spirit is a person, right? Not a thing, not an it, and not a, some kind of impersonal force. And so here we see that whatever the Father knows, the Holy Spirit knows. See, that's good evidence toward his deity. One more thing I want to show you. The Holy Spirit is all-powerful. Now, this is the angel comes to... Mary, before the birth of Jesus, explaining how this miracle could happen, angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he'll be called the Son of God. And so we see here the Holy Spirit has the power to create life. In fact, he has the power of the Most High God himself. And so the point is that the Holy Spirit is described in the Bible in terms that really could only properly be used to describe God. That's why we say the Holy Spirit is God. Now, there's a second line of evidence I want to follow with you. And, and because here, here's the thing, that the Bible equates the Holy Spirit with God. Now, I say equates because there's no single verse in the whole Bible where it just spells it right out. It says like, like the book of Hezekiah. One, one, the Holy Spirit is God. All right, that verse doesn't exist. But we take the whole of Scripture and you pull it all together. We, we put the pieces together. We see that the Bible still makes that very important connection for us in more than one place. But, but one very key place is in the book of Acts in chapter 5. To set the stage for you, in the early church, people were selling lands and goods and things they owned. They would sell those and bring the money to the church to be given to support the poor. Well, one couple named Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, they did that. They brought the money, but the thing is that they held some of it back. Now, that was okay. It's their money. They could do whatever they want with it. But the problem is that they lied about it, right? So they said, we, we, we're giving, we got this much for the land. They only got this much, and they secretly kind of held some of it back. Well, they brought it to the apostles. The apostle Peter called them out on that. And when we, when we see him, Peter call them out, his word, the connection is made. So... Peter says, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. So Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then like two verses later, he says, you lied to God. So Peter makes the equation. In Peter's mind, those are, two, those are the exact same thing. He equates the Holy Spirit with God because the Holy Spirit is God. And so, this is, we, we see that the, the Father is God. Now, I don't have to just establish that because nobody in history has ever disputed the deity of God the Father. That's why we're not spending time talking about that. The, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, if you grew up in church, you might have just always assumed that Jesus is God, and that's a given, right? 
but not everybody teaches or believes that. And so the second thing today, we want to show you that the biblical writers claim that Jesus is fully equal to the Father, and Jesus himself makes the same claim. Okay, so I want to give you now three lines of evidence about the deity of Jesus. First is this, there's a key verse, John chapter 1, that lays it out pretty clearly for us. In John chapter 1, we, we see, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. And God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. Well, this is kind of an interesting way to talk about the, who is this Word? What is the Word all about? What does that even mean? Um, it, says that, it says that He was there from the very beginning, well, down in verse 14, we start to see who this is referring to, this, this person called the Word. It says, the Word became human, made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So John says, you know, hey, this, this being that existed from eternity past became human, lived with us. We've seen him. We met him. He's the son of... And so, and as you read on in the verses that follow, it becomes very obvious that, that he's talking about Jesus. And so, let's go back to verses one through three and plug that knowledge back in now. Two things about the word. First of all, he existed in the beginning with God. That means that we could call him this, the word, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Before he was born into human life, before he was given the human name Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, existed, said all the way back from the very beginning, as far back as we could even imagine, before there was even time, before anything created existed, he was there. He's eternal. He's uncreated. And then the second thing we see about him, it says the word was God. It doesn't say he was a God, small g. He was God. And so here's Jesus before he was Jesus. Can you think about that? Before he was born in humanity, the, ex the pre-existent son of God, he existed as deity. So Jesus is not a man who became God. He was God from eternity past who became man and came to dwell among us. That's the first thing we want to see. But the second line of evidence goes along this way, that, that the Bible describes Jesus as doing things that only God properly could do. For example, creating the world. We just saw that in John 1, but Colossians 1 also says, through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He talks about things we can see, things we can't see. Only God, only deity can create something out of nothing. And here we see the Son of God, God the second person, cooperating with God the Father to create the world, the universe that we know. Only God can do that. The second thing is that Jesus forgives sin. Matthew 9, some people brought to Jesus a paralyzed man on a mat. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now, look, I can, I can forgive you if, if you sin against me personally in some way. But I can't forgive you in any ultimate sense. Right? If you, were to, if you were to steal something that belonged to me, I could forgive you for that. But I couldn't say, oh, you don't have to go to jail. Oh, you don't have to pay a fine. Only the judge gets to say that. And likewise, with respect to our sin, only God gets to say, you're ultimately forgiven. But Jesus said that. And, you know, he can, he can say that. 
And in fact, when he said that, there was a big scandal about it because the people who heard him that day realized that he was claiming for himself something that only God could do. Jesus can forgive our sin. And then the third thing is that he he can judge humanity. The Father judges no one. Instead, he's given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son as they honor the Father. And anyone who doesn't honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. He's saying that Jesus has the authority to judge your and my final eternal destiny. If he's only a created being some way, that's a scandal. That's not right. Only God has the right to judge your and my final destiny and our eternity. And it says, as a side note, notice it says that if you honor the Father, you honor the Son. They have the same honor that's due to them. So, So what we're saying here in this second line of evidence is that Jesus is God because he does things that only God can properly do. Now, the third line of evidence on this regard is that Jesus himself claimed to be God. Did you realize that? There's a bunch of places where we could explore that in the New Testament. Jesus claimed to be God. But what, the one I want to look at today is in, it's in Roman, uh, sorry, it's in uh, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus is talking to a number of uh, Jewish religious leaders out in the public courts and out in, in, the, in the mall, so to speak. They're all gathered around. And Jesus is discussing with them their relationship with the historic figure Abraham. Abraham was the original founding father of Judaism. And, and Abraham was highly revered by the Jews of that day. And Jesus is saying, well, let's, let's talk about your relationship with Abraham. And in that context, Jesus says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. Now, Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And Jesus says, he saw me. I knew him. And the people in response to that said, wait a second. You aren't even 50 years old yet. How can you say that you've seen Abraham? So they're, start, they're following what he's saying. They're not buying it, but they're following it. right? And so in response to their opposition, Jesus says in verse 58, he answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now that sounds like bad grammar, right? But it's not. You notice there in that verse that the, the, the words I am are capitalized. Why is that? Well, the reason why is because Jesus is referencing something that happened in the Old Testament back in Exodus chapter 3, some 1,500 years before his time, when God appeared to Moses. God was going to call Moses and commission him to bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He said, Moses, this is what I want you to do. And Moses wasn't sure about that. So Moses said, wait a second, God. They're going to ask me who sent me. What am I going to tell them? And God says, tell them I am has sent me to you. God identifies himself to Moses by the name I am. There's a lot more we could say about that. And if you look at, uh, at Exodus chapter 3. But the point of this episode here in, in, in John is that Jesus was claiming for himself the very name of the God who spoke to Moses. Jesus was identifying himself completely with the God of the Old Testament. Do you get that? You see that? He was he's essentially claiming that he was God. 
And, and it says the response of the people, that's, this is really interesting and informative. It says at that point, all the people picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Because in the Jewish law, the penalty for blasphemy was death by stoning. They heard Jesus committing a blasphemy. They heard him committing the greatest possible blasphemy, that he was equating himself with the God of the Old Testament, the one true God. And so it was right in their perspective to pick up stones and stone him for that. Now, here's the thing. If that's not what Jesus meant, he could have easily corrected them. He could have said, he could have said, whoa, boys, put down the stones. This is just a misunderstanding. Whoa, that's not what I meant. But you know, he didn't back down on it. And so they understood what he was saying. And so you may, you may debate about whether you think Jesus was correct in identifying himself with the Old Testament God, but you cannot debate that he was claiming that. Now, we believe he was correct because of the miracles surrounding his life, because of his incredible, wise, insightful teaching, because of his resurrection from the dead. Do we believe that he, that was tell, he was telling the truth? And so what we have to summarize this up then is Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all divine. They're all God. They're, they're all eternal. They're all uncreated. They're all equal, three persons in one God. Now, so that's, that's really, we've laid out for you the, the whole, basically, the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And so at this point, um, we're going we're gonna to explore a little bit more fully this idea that people have always tried to resolve the paradox. And we've seen in each week of the series how different people have resolved this paradox, have tried to do so, but in every time they do, they, they're unfaithful in some way to what the Bible has to say. And so just the last thing I want to share with you is some people try to resolve the paradox of the Trinity by denying that Jesus is fully God. And I want to share three examples of that and then tell you why that doesn't work. So uh, the first example is a movement, an ancient movement called Arianism. About 250 years after Jesus, this tumult started to rock the church about the identity and the nature of Jesus. And so people were debating about that. There was a guy named Arius who was a teacher uh, in one of the churches of the ancient world who was teaching, began teaching that Jesus was not fully God. And Arianism, which is named after him, had the idea that Jesus was the pinnacle of all creation. He was far above any other created being. He was at the top of the ladder of God's creation, but he wasn't equal to God. And at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, that idea was rightly rejected, and yet it hung on for quite some time. It became very popular, not because it was biblical, partly because it was endorsed by some Roman emperors, but also partly because people could then like live with, they didn't have to live with the paradox of the three in the one. It, became, it just made it an easy way out, but it wasn't true. It wasn't biblical. Now, more contemporary to our age is the movement called Unitarianism. So Unitarianism in, in America 
uh, started in about in the 1700s, before the, around the time of the Revolutionary War. And just so you can tell from the name, Unitarianism is the opposite of Trinitarianism. One versus three. So they believe in one God, but Unitarians believe that Jesus was nothing more than a mortal man, maybe a great man, a great teacher, etc. But he was definitely not any kind of special being, much less that he was God. And Unitarianism many, many years ago abandoned um, the whole idea of being faithful to the Bible as its authority. More, even more contemporary than that are the Jehovah Witnesses. So the Jehovah Witnesses or the Watchtower Society arose in the late 1800s, and it's kind of a modern form of Arianism because the Jehovah Witnesses teach that Jesus is the pinnacle of creation, a created being, a special being, that he's a God with a small g, but not equal to God the Father. Now, in the ancient Trinitarian controversy of Arianism, the people who were arguing for the Trinity made two key points. They're still relevant. They're still valid today. They made two key points. And the first point they made was that if Jesus is not fully God, then he's not worthy of our worship. So, see, the Bible condemns idolatry pretty clearly, right? Idolatry is whenever we worship anyone or anything ahead of God or even equal to God in any way. And the Bible condemns that for sure. Now, if Jesus is not God, if he's less than God, if he's a creative being in some way, then it should be unthinkable that we would worship him. If we worship him, then we've committed idolatry. And yet for for 2,000 years, the church has always worshipped Jesus. And rightly so, because the Bible tells us that we should worship Jesus. For example, Hebrews chapter 6, when God brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all of God's angels worship him. The angels of heaven are called to worship him. In fact, in in Revelation chapter 5, we see all the angels of heaven. In fact, all of creation around the heavenly throne of God. And they're worshiping Jesus. He's worthy, worthy, worthy. And so, we we ought to worship Jesus. We we should worship Jesus. We can and we should. He should be the highest and, and central place in our lives. Because he really is God. But the second implication of this is that people, Christians have realized from the very beginning that if Jesus is not fully God, then he's not actually able to save us. So you think about Jesus' purpose. He went to the cross to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven. We can be right with God. We could be united with God for eternity. Now I want you to think just for a minute, think about the, how huge is the total debt of human sin from the beginning of creation of humanity till now? Think about how huge is the cumulative total of all of the evil and all of the depravity that's ever been conceived and ever been committed by human beings, by billions of human beings who have ever lived on the planet. Can you tally that up in your mind? Man, it's, it's, it's infinite. It's huge. It's, it, we, can't, we can't even tell you that up. Well, how can one man's sacrifice be enough to cover all of that weight of sin? How can one man's sacrifice be enough to assure, to accomplish such a great salvation for so many people? Well, 
the one who is making that sacrifice would have to have infinite capacity. And beyond that, the one who's making that sacrifice would have to be completely sinless. Because if he had sin of his own to pay for, how could he pay for the sin of other people? In other words, for Jesus' death to really do what we need, then he has to be God. Only God, only the divine man could accomplish the salvation that we need. And so, you know what? We don't have any assurance that our sins are forgiven. We don't have any reason for hope in eternity. We don't have any confidence that we could be reconciled with God. We don't have any promise of a new life now, here and now in this world, and transformation of our lives now, unless the Savior that we rely on is fully God. You with me on that? So, after weeks of studying the Trinity, you know, your, your brain might feel like a pretzel right now, right? How do you get your mind around all this stuff? And that's why, honestly, um, it's so important to use the resources that we have at, at Pursue God. Because this, this is something you can't just, like, figure out on yourself. We've got... Uh, Pro, uh, things you can go process and talk about with uh, friends, with relatives, with a small group, with your, your, you know, your family, your mentor. We've got great resources. If you go to PursueGod.org and go to the page for the Trinity, we've got podcasts there that you can go into greater depth that we have time to do um, here on Sunday. We have uh, a great PDF you can download that's a summary of everything that... that uh, this whole series is all about. So, you know, when I'm teaching on Sunday, I don't want you to just sit passively by and soak it in. I'm trying to set you up to have conversations with people. That's how we really grow is when we can really discover and explore together in conversation with other people. So I hope you won't just leave it here on Sunday. But what I want to close with Today is a practical truth, and then next week in our final week of the series, we're going to really dig in on some practical implications of the Trinity as well. But the practical truth I have for you today, I want you to understand, Jesus is able to save you. Jesus is able to save you. Because he's God, his sacrifice for you is big enough. It's big enough for whatever has happened in your life. Because God the Son, the second person of the Trinity has died in your place, nothing else is required for salvation. Nothing else. Now, I've heard people over the years have said, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. And they're thinking about something that maybe in their past is some, something they've committed, some big sin that just seems to put them in their mind, put them beyond the range of, of God's grace and God's salvation. And my response is, look, I don't need to know what you've done. All I need to know is what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done is enough, no matter what you've done. He has divine power to forgive sins. He has divine power to change your life and to transform you from the inside out. And you know what? All you got to do is admit your need. I say all you got to do because that's probably the hardest step is to own your sin. And to acknowledge it honestly and openly before God. Say, yes, God. Yes, God. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others. And I'm guilty. And as you acknowledge that, 
then you call out to Jesus to make it right and you trust him and his finished work on the cross and, 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 and nothing else, not in yourself, not in church, religion, or anything else. It's a free gift. It's a, a gift of God's abundant grace toward you so that you don't have to do anything else. You can't do anything else because Jesus is enough. Of course he is. He's God, the Son. Of course he is enough. And so will you come to him today? Will you entrust your life and your eternity to him today? Talk to somebody about this today. Talk to the person who invited you today. Come up to the front and talk to our leaders after the service is over. Because we want to make sure you get all of your questions answered. Because Jesus is able to save. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your incredible, incredible kindness to us. Thank you for all that you've done on our behalf through your son. Father, we're, we're amazed. We, we try to get our head around your infinite nature, the Trinity. We're, we're just like, wow, I can't, I, we can't imagine, we can't grasp who you are. But thank you that you are this awesome, majestic, transcendent, infinite God that we worship and that you've decided to make yourself known to us, that you've decided to invite us into relationship with you. And so God, we just, we stand in humility. We stand in worship. We just say, yes, what we're amazed at you. And we just ask you to come and do your work in our lives for your honor and your glory. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.